Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. I um, want to ask you this morning, have you ever heard of the famous Fabergé eggs? Fabergé eggs. I'm seeing some nodding heads. If you're not in the loop, the Fabergé eggs are this um, great national treasure of imperial Russia that came forward uh, maybe the 60 years or so before the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. The story goes that the czar of that time, Alexander III, wanted to give his wife, the Tsarina, named Maria, an Easter gift. And he wanted to thought about giving her a bejeweled Easter egg, right, in the Orthodox tradition, Easter eggs are, are a much, very much a part of Christian worship, and so he wanted to give her an Easter egg. And so he commissioned an artist from the House of Fabergé, a jewelry company, to create a very ornate Easter egg. And so Easter arrived, and the, the gift arrived, and this egg was, was enamel on the outside, a pure white with a gold ring around it. When you popped open the egg, inside was a, um, a solid gold yolk. <laughs> A solid gold uh, little chicken and uh, a little solid, a little bed of gold for it to sit in. And around the chicken's neck were a tiny miniature replica of the crown jewels of Russia. And Tsarina thought it was just the coolest thing she had ever seen, one of the neatest gifts she'd ever received. And so uh, the Tsar made the House of Fabergé the official jewelers of the um, of the czar, and for the next 60 years, every Easter, the Fabergé house would make these ornate, it's hard to describe because everyone's different, these ornate, bejeweled, gold-encrusted eggs, and they vary, they're small and they're big, everyone's just a little different. Um, but they would include things like, like Bible verses or Christian imagery, but also like Russian imperial symbols, and they'd be all sorts of colors that were hard to put together in that time and in that place. And you'd open them up and they'd have little gifts, maybe pictures of the royal family. And today they sort of stand as these symbols of extreme opulence, right? Uh, that um, while they're exchanging these very ornate bejeweled eggs together, you know, there's a, you know, a socialist revolution happening right underneath them. Um, so don't, you know, they also represent like, don't forget to take care of the poor if you're owning a Fabergé egg. As well, but today, even then, it was such an extravagant, an ex- absolutely extravagant gift to give. Today, these eggs are worth like tens of millions of dollars. They they are supremely expensive, and um, they they are the a treasured possession of the czar's family of the time, right? Because every single one of these even got to the point where every year they said, "We don't need to see the design. You do such a good job." House of Fabergé. Just make the egg and give it to us, and I'm sure we're going to love it. And so every single one of these eggs became a treasured possession of the royal family in Russia. 
Um, in our reading today, we're going to talk about treasured possessions. I want you to have that imagery of the Fabergé egg in your head, this um, great king presenting his wife with this beautiful, bejeweled, gold-encrusted, $10 million um, Easter egg, <laughs> uh, and the treasure and the love that that represents. Because God is going to talk about how Israel is his treasured possession. Israel is his treasured possession. Um, that Israel is God's Fabergé egg, as it were. And there's a lot of implications for what that means for Israel and for you and for me. Um, and, and this is news that God is going to give today. He's going to talk about being a treasured possession in the context of his great introduction to Israel. And that's where our reading begins. The whole of Exodus 19 was our reading today. And I want to talk about that because Moses had this introduction to God through a burning bush. And God spoke to Moses through the burning bush and sort of announced his plans. But God really hasn't done anything like that with the people of Israel. And so today we get not the burning bush, but the burning mountain. And that is not consumed by the fire. And God is going to introduce himself to the people of Israel as an entire new nation freed from Israel and say, you are my treasured possession. I want to break down our reading today and, and look at this great introduction. Who is this God leading Israel through the wilderness, taking care of their food and their water and their safety? What does this God want of Israel? What does it mean to be God's treasured possession? Well, today, Israel as a nation is going to find out. Exodus 19, our reading, is actually a new chapter in the history of Israel because in our reading today, God is going to introduce himself, like we said, um, and, and talk about what it means for God to be God and Israel to be his people. And you think back to the book of Genesis, and God even then had this in mind, this moment in mind. He said to Abraham, Abraham, one day there'll be a great nation that comes from you, and their, their descendants will be as numbered as the stars in the sky and the sands on the beach. The sands on the desert, I guess. Sand. And, um, the, and God says... I'm going to bless them immeasurably, and they'll be a blessing to the world. Well, now you have a nation. The book of Numbers says this nation is about a half million people in size. And God is going to reintroduce himself and establish a relationship with them, just like he did with Abraham and Moses before. And, and so that's the context, right? Um, Israel's been freed from slavery um, they've been wandering in the desert. They've been, God's been taking care of them by giving food and water and safety. And, and God's been bringing them to Mount Sinai. And, and, and God says, camp out here. We're going to get some business done together. And that's where our reading picks up. So here's where our reading begins. Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this is how God wants to introduce himself. I'm the God who freed you out of Egypt. I bore you to freedom on eagle's wings, a beautiful bit of poetry there. And now I want to have a, a relationship with you. 
And, and this is what the relationship looks like. There are three real key words in this part of the scripture. The first is covenant. Um, the second is uh, treasure. And the third is a kingdom of priests. So there's the three concepts that, that God announces in our reading today. Three things he has in store for the people of Israel. Uh, I want to break each of them down and talk about them very briefly. I want to talk about a covenant, a treasure, um, and a kingdom of priests. And that's going to help us understand the significance of this meeting. So first, God wants to make a covenant. Now, a covenant is a big Bible word. And uh, don't roll your eyes at it because it's a very important Bible word. Uh, a covenant is an important Bible word. It's Bible talk for contract. We all know how contracts work. All of us have engaged in some form of contract in our lives, right? Um, there are stipulations. We write them down on paper. We both agree to them, and we both sign on a dotted line. Um, right. Uh, sometimes these are like one-way documents where uh, a will, for example, a will says, when I die, I want to give 10% of my estate to the church. I want to break up the rest of it, 30-30-30, uh, and give it to my adult children. And you sign on the dotted line right, in the presence of a, of a witness. And there you go. It's all done. Right? There's a covenant. There's a contract in place that this is how everything is going to shake out um, in the context of my will. Or perhaps, right, you have a, a, a conditional covenant with two people, and they get together and they say, okay, well, here are the stipulations. If you do your end and I, I'll do my end, and that's how we're going to work together. And so think of it like a car payment. Uh, sometimes, right, you go and you've got a car payment or maybe a mortgage, and you say to the bank, bank, I really want this car. Can you buy it for me, and I'll pay you back with some interest over time, and then I'll, I'll, I'll drive the car. And the bank says, sure, and you guys both agree, right? Um, if you pay me my car payment, then you can drive this car. And that's a covenant, right? So, so even though this covenant language feels really bible and abstract, in reality, we're all people who make contracts every day. And God wants to make a contract with Israel. That's how he begins his introduction. So God wants to make a contract. He wants to make a covenant. God wants to make Israel, second thing, his treasured possession. His treasured possession. Now, this is actually a little bit of Hebrew here with a special meaning because a treasured possession um, was something that a king or a ruler had in their own private collection, right? Um, this was not the great massive fortune of the nation that they ran, right? Those had specific reasons. This was a personal treasured something that the king and the queen kept for themselves out of pure delight and happiness. Maybe an ambassador came and gave a gift to the king, and it's beautiful, and they love it. Um, maybe there's um, something they commissioned as a gift for each other. Um, but a Fabergé egg is, is a good example of a treasured possession, that the, the royal family of Russia loved these Fabergé eggs and kept them close until um, the, the Russian Revolution uh, took place. Right. So even though the Tsar of Russia oversaw the vast fortunes of Russia, uh, he had for himself and his wife and his family these little Fabergé eggs, these exquisite pieces of treasure that were their own private possession. That's what the Hebrew is getting at here, that God wants Israel uh, as his own Fabergé egg, as this beautiful uh, piece of, 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 of existence that is something special for him. And you'll notice, what does he say, right? He says, even though I own the whole world, even though it created the whole world, technically all of it is mine. You guys are going to be special. 
I'm going to hold you a little closer. I'm going to give you more access. I want you to be my treasured possession. Even though the whole world is mine, you guys are special. And that's what God, how God introduces himself. He says, I want to make a covenant with you. I want you to be my treasured possession, and I want to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the third thing that is said, right? God wants to make Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, I'm going to say a word about priests, because even though technically my title is I'm an Anglican priest, I'm not a priest like this. Um, it's a language thing. It has to do with English and the Greek word presbyter. That's what it is in the Greek, and then they translated it to priest when they got to English. And like, But that's that's not me, right? I'm, I'm basically just an elder. It's my job to sort of take care of the congregation, so they call me a priest. Ancient priests were different. Ancient priests had this job to stand in the gap between God and the rest of humanity. And they sort of functioned as a gateway. You had to go through the priest to get to God. And that's what, what God was using that kind of language in the Old Testament to talk about a kingdom of priests. And so what's going on, God has this vision, like he said to Abraham back in Genesis, where Israel, this nation, is going to function as a way of, of introducing the world to God. So here's God, here's the world. Israel stands in the middle. And Israel stands in the middle and, and, and helps people get to God through them. That's the vision that God has. And so put all this together, right? Put all this together and you get a vision where God says, Dear Israel, I want to make a deal with you. If you keep my laws and you keep my commands that I'm about to give you, I will be in a relationship with you like no other. You will be my special people. You will be my perfect, my, my extra little project. You will function among all the other nations, like mediating priests, pointing people to me, right? The whole world is going to see our partnership, and they will know that I am the only God, and you will be a blessing to everyone. That's what is being implied in this section of the Bible. That's the invitation God gives to Israel. And this is how Israel responds. So Moses came and called the leaders of the people and sat before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They're agreeing to the terms. God says, I want to make a contract with you. If you obey the stipulations of the contract, you'll be my special people. And you're going to tell the world and be how the world understands me. And Israel says, yes, very good. And so that's what's happening in our reading. Um, that Moses prepares the people to meet with God. And then God comes down at the top of Mount Sinai to do the paperwork with the people. That is what is happening in Exodus chapter 19. Now, there are a lot of rules about going on to the mountain while God is present. Don't do it. And it sounds kind of counterintuitive. We're like, why would God um, not want people on the mountain? Um, well, um, I don't think that's counterintuitive to a God of love. The Jewish people and the Christian people have always believed that God was sort of special and otherworldly and good. Um, and um, it, for a human to be in his presence, a fallen human to be in the presence of God, would just obliterate the human being. God is just that good. Um, God is like a light in his holiness, and we are like shadows that would disappear in his presence. Like That's something the Christian tradition has believed. And so they're these, um, they, they go and they mark around the mountain and say, don't cross these lines uh, for your own safety. 
here's an earthly example to kind of put this in perspective. Um, it was one of the scariest moments of my life, actually. Um, many of you knew I grew up in, in Richmond, Virginia. My family still lives there. And so Beth and I travel between Richmond and, and Pittsburgh frequently. Um, and, and we've traveled, of course, between Pit Richmond and Ligonier. And the, the tip we tell everyone making the same trip is just avoid Washington, D.C., however you can, because there's traffic and the beltway and the aggressive driving. We go the long way around D.C. because the long way is the short way when you consider traffic. But one time, in fact, this is the last time we said, hey, we want to stop at this place in D.C. We're going to do a thing. We'll see some of the sights and then we'll leave. So we went into D.C. We saw the Capitol. We saw the Washington Monument. Now we're on the way out. And I said, I'm going to take the, the G.W. Parkway, the George Washington Parkway, out of the city. If you know D.C., the George Washington Parkway runs along the south bank of the Potomac. And it's a highway, but it's also a really long park. It's like 18 miles long. There's hiking trails, there's biking trails, there's playgrounds, there's scenic view stops. It's this really neat road. And so um, Beth and I turn onto the GW Parkway. We're heading out of D.C. Well, as we're driving along the GW Parkway, we're like, you know what? We should probably get a pit stop. And I just happen to think all of the exits along the GW Parkway uh, they just have picnic shelters, that sort of thing. And so I just pull off at the next exit. In hindsight, this next exit wasn't very well marked. And as I turn the corner and pull off the GW Parkway, I come around the loop. And uh, I, I come and walking toward me are two soldiers from the United States military in full camouflage. Helmets, bulletproof vests with machine guns by their hips. And they're walking toward me at a military checkpoint. And I'm thinking, what in the Betsy Ross did I just do? Where am I? And so I cracked a U-turn as quick as I could and got out of there as fast as I could. It turns out, I went and Google Maps it when I got home. I took the one exit off the GW Parkway that was the not marked secret entrance to the George, w., uh, George Bush Central Intelligence Agency headquarters. Beth and I once accidentally took a wrong turn and crashed the front gate of the CIA in Washington, D.C. It was a very scary moment. <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty sure my name and my license plate are in a government database now um, because of it. Um, so even though I'm a U.S. citizen, right, I have all of these rights and privileges. Um, there are plenty of places um, that I cannot go, and there are plenty of places I just don't have access to. The CIA is theoretically working to preserve my freedom and keep me safe. That does not mean I get to waltz into their headquarters and check up on things and see how they're doing. In fact, I am met by military men with machine guns. And so there's the same way where God's putting up these boundaries and says, look, stay out. It's for your own good. Don't cross the boundaries here, at least without God's permission. So what comes next? What comes next? Well, in the very next chapter of the Bible, God is going to begin the stipulations for what it means for Israel to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, and a treasured possession. He will give, in the very next chapter of the Bible, ten overarching ethical visions as a framework for virtuous living that we will know as the Ten Commandments. But he won't stop there. He's going to begin giving uh, rules about how to treat foreigners in the midst of Israel how to organize people's families, how to uh, have a litigation framework for solving neighborly disputes. 
Beyond this, God is going to give Israel a new structure for their religion with priests and sacrifices and a traveling church tent that they take with them on their nomadic life together. And even more, God is going to spell out in rich detail a whole list of blessings saying, if you will obey these rules, here are like two dozen ways in which I will bless the heck out of you. And if you don't obey these rules, here are two dozen ways where I'm going to curse you. And you'll have no one to blame but yourself for not following the rules. We're going to come to call this particular set of rules in this particular contract, we're going to come to call this the law of Moses or the law of Sinai. It is a set of rules that when followed properly, it will separate Israel. When it followed properly, it will separate Israel from the rest of the world. It will make them holy and help them to know, help the world to know of the God who made them. That is what is going on in our reading. This is the beginning of Israel receiving the law. This contract, this covenant, is it's so important. It may be one of the most important um, things of the Old Testament, right? Because um, it's going to define Israel's life as a people and a nation. It'll become a framework for their joys and their holidays and their feasts and their celebrations. It's all in the law. It'll become the arbiter of their life together. What happens when my ox gets out and gores my neighbor's ox and kills it, and I know my ox has got a bad habit of doing it, or my neighbor built a bad fence? Who's liable? The law will help us understand that particular part of human life together. The law of Moses is going to explain why Israel experiences a number of curses in their life, why Israel is conquered, and why maybe a thousand years after receiving the law, Israel will find themselves enslaved once again. And even now, right, 3,500 years later, in 2022, we'll still be trying to figure out how to best apply these laws to our own time. So after three months of being in the desert and learning to trust God, Israel assents to this new mission to live differently, to trust God, and to point the world to him. How well they're going to engage with that mission remains to be seen. Uh, But there's much more to say about this contract, and this is the final word I have for you this morning. I want to remind you that this is not your contract. This is a contract between God and Israel. This is not a contract for you. Um, We can learn a lot about God by studying this contract, right? In the same way that I could read somebody's will, and pretty much through reading someone's will, I can say they had great relationships with their family. They had terrible relationships with their family, right? I can learn a lot about somebody by looking at their will in many ways. Um, But in the same way, we can learn learn about God by looking at this contract. We can learn about him. But that doesn't mean you have this contract with God. Your contract with God is different. As St. Paul said to the the, the non-Christians, the non-Jewish Christians in the book of Acts, to his jailer, his contract was this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We didn't come to God. We don't become his people through obedience. We come through faith. We believe. Um, We don't become the people of God by keeping a contract, um, but we do it because Jesus kept a contract on our behalf. We are not treasured possessions because of our good works. We are treasured possessions because we are adopted children. And God uses this metaphor of adoption to say, you are special to me like an adopted child is special. Um, I love you just as my own children. So we need to make sure that we keep a little distance here when we explore this contract with God 
and as this is being made with Israel. But the great promise of this contract um, that, that, uh, that is given, that you will be a kingdom of priests and a treasured possession, um, that part is still for you. That part is for you. So later on in the New Testament, Peter is going to begin writing a letter, and he's going to talk about this very thing. And he's going to pick up this language, and he's going to apply it to the church. And he's going to say, friends, and I say to you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So Peter goes back all the way to this chapter, and he picks up on this language and says um, to the people of God who were not at the time Jewish exclusively, he says, listen, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you, and I say to you, you, you are God's royal priesthood. You are his treasured possession. Peter goes back to this portion of Exodus and pulls this language out and says, because of what Jesus has done, this belongs to you. But Peter adds one extra theme to it. He says, how does this happen? How are you that way? The answer is mercy. Because Peter says, once you had not received mercy, now you have received so Peter adds this missing exodus to help clarify, this piece missing from Exodus, that we are indeed treasured possessions in a kingdom of priests. Not because we're great, not because we're, we're, we're doing excellent things, not because we came in first in a race, not because we have straight A's on our report card. We're a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood because of God's mercy. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, friends, uh, you have been made into the Fabergé idea worth infinitely, worth something worth infinite to the God of the heavens, beloved in every single way, tokens of Jesus' death and resurrection, treasured by our Father in heaven. So today Israel is committed to a contract with God to obey his commandments. Spoiler alert, they're going to do a really bad job of it over the next thousand years or so, right? Earning it doesn't work. We all need his mercy. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, mercy is what we have. That's ultimately what allows me to proclaim to you that you are the treasured possession of God himself. You are presented to God as this great jewel-encrusted egg was presented to the court of Russia. You are not judged or rejected based on the craftsman's work. You are welcomed as a source of delight by the heavens and treated as a beloved gift, put on display for the world to see as a proud, proud father. Forgiven through the death of Jesus, restored to relationship with the heavens, God's great Easter joy is receiving you into this heavenly home. That you, my friends, are his beloved forever. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, down in Pennsylvania.